Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Don't forget to mark your calendars for October 6th. A bunch of pod friends and I are hosting a true crime podcast meetup in Los Angeles. Head over to the Murderish Facebook group where you'll find an invitation posted to the top of the feed. You'll find a list of participating podcasts and all the details about the event. It'll be a casual setting where we can have a drink and chat about murder and podcasts and whatever else. I hope to see you all there. I want to take a minute to thank some new show patrons. Casey Griffith, Larry King, who increased his support, Lacey Jane Clements, Heather from Nature vs. Narcissism and Status Pending Podcasts, Morph from Criminology, A Murder in My Family and Crime Sphere Podcast, and War Baby from Murderous Minors Podcast. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot and it helps so much. If you're not already listening to the podcasts I just mentioned, you're really missing out. Give them a listen, you won't regret it. This episode is going to be a little bit different. It's sort of a doubleheader with two minisodes inside of one episode. Both stories involve teenagers and bullying, and tragically, two lives were lost. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to Murderish, a true crime podcast that delivers a 3D look inside stories of murder and other creepy events. Murderish podcasts may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. And remember, listening to Murderish doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murderish. Tristan Jensen, an only child, was born in Chatsworth, California on June 23, 1984. When Tristan was just four years old, his mother died of cancer. Being that his father was incarcerated at the time, Tristan's grandmother took custody of him, raising him in the quaint town of Redlands. Redlands is a small town in Southern California, about an hour east of Los Angeles. It's a town where everyone is connected in one way or another, and the crime rate is low. Tristan's aunt and two cousins live next door, and when Tristan was 13 years old, he moved in with them. Tristan and his two cousins were like brothers, very close. On August 11, 1998, Tristan failed to come home, and this was unusual for him. His family reported him missing the following day. An extensive search was organized, but they could not find the missing teenager. It would be seven long weeks before Tristan's family would receive any news of his whereabouts. On Hibiscus Drive and Gardenia Avenue in Redlands, city workers were called out to the area to look at a clogged sewer. As workers took a closer look, they discovered the sewer was clogged by human skeletal remains. At first, the workers believed the remains were fake and placed there as some sort of joke. They quickly learned this was no joke and the bones were real. The trail of bones led up the sewer system where workers found the remains of a human body that had been dumped there through a manhole cover. The manhole was located in a cul-de-sac which was just blocks away from Tristan's home. Given the proximity of the manhole to Tristan's house, law enforcement went to Tristan's house to search for something that had his DNA on it. They wanted to compare Tristan's DNA to the remains that were discovered. Tristan's grandmother gave investigators a baby tooth of Tristan's, which they took to the lab to be tested. The DNA extracted from the tooth was a match to the remains found in the sewer. The remains were that of the missing boy, Tristan Jensen. Investigators immediately began interviewing residents who lived near the location where Tristan's body was discovered. Their attention was turned to a 15-year-old boy named John Proctor Remsen, known as J.P., 
The boy had been seen visiting the crime scene, and he also told investigators that he saw two men pull something out of a van and dump it into the sewer the day Tristan went missing. The story was not believable as the apparent dumping of the body happened during broad daylight. JP and Tristan were schoolmates and hung out occasionally. JP was large in stature and was known as a bully. He had an obsession with knives and explosives, which according to some, his father encouraged. Not popular in school, JP spent most of his time alone and was known to torture and kill animals. Investigators brought JP in for questioning, where they heard varying accounts of what happened the day Tristan went missing. His first version of the story was that Tristan wanted to buy a 15-inch knife from him. Somehow, according to JP, Tristan fell over the stairs, landed on the knife, and this killed him. At some point, JP changed his story and said he and Tristan had been in a fight, at which time he stabbed Tristan twice in the chest. This version of the story prompted a search of JP's home. During the search, bloodstains were found along with a number of explosives and items used to make fireworks. The search came to an immediate halt at this point, and the entire neighborhood was evacuated. Law enforcement were worried about people's safety as they believed the explosives were unstable. The bomb squad was called in to detonate the explosives. They did so in a makeshift bunker outside of JP's home. People who lived miles away could hear the bombs as they were detonated. Police entered the home again once it was safe and determined it was the location where Tristan died. This was largely based on the amount of blood they found in JP's garage. It was at this time that JP decided to tell police what really happened that day. He said that Tristan called him a name and he reacted by stabbing him in the stomach. He pulled the knife out of Tristan's body and stabbed him a second time in the stomach, but this time, the knife went all the way through to Tristan's back. JP then carried Tristan's lifeless body outside to his backyard and hid it in some trees. Tristan's body lay hidden for four hours. Then, JP took Tristan's body to a nearby manhole and disposed of it in the sewer. Investigators believed this version of the story because details were consistent with evidence found in JP's garage. Not long after disposing of Tristan's body, JP's mother came home and saw the large amount of blood in their garage. He explained it away by telling her that their two dogs had gotten into a fight. Apparently, JP's parents never questioned his story. If anyone expected JP to be remorseful for his actions, they would be sorely disappointed. The callous teenager told a probation officer that he would do things differently the next time he killed. He explained that next time, he would cut off the victim's head with a saw, remove their teeth, and grind them to dust. A hacksaw was later found at JP's home, and the blades were found to have blood on them. It was later determined that the blood was not human. It was animal blood. Still, a very chilling fact knowing that JP allegedly took pleasure in killing animals. Although the blood was determined to be from an animal, police said they believe JP did make an attempt to dismember Tristan's body with the hacksaw before dumping it into a manhole. Although police wanted JP tried as an adult, his case ultimately was tried in juvenile court. JP showed no emotion during proceedings, where the prosecution argued this was a premeditated murder. They pointed out that JP had been killing animals for some time, and elevated his activities to the cold-blooded murder of a human being. They said JP would have likely become a serial killer had he not been caught for Tristan's murder. The prosecution laid out their theories of motive, 
and said that JP was jealous of Tristan because girls liked him, but paid no attention to JP. They also argued that JP was mad at Tristan for telling the school authorities that JP had brought alcohol to school. JP, according to the prosecution, was also resentful because he and Tristan liked the same girl, and he felt she would choose Tristan. The judge ultimately found JP guilty of second-degree murder, and the teenager was sentenced to 15 years to life, with eligibility for parole in seven years due to California law. JP wasn't the only person found guilty of a serious crime. His parents were arrested and held on high bail amounts. $1 million for John Remsen and $500,000 for Susan Remsen. John Remsen was sentenced to two years in prison for child endangerment, possession of unregistered firearms, and possession of explosive devices. Susan Remsen was sentenced to three years of probation for possession of unregistered firearms and possession of explosives. JP's violent behavior did not stop after he was sent to prison. In 2006, JP was sentenced to 10 additional years after he and another inmate attacked another prisoner with an 8-inch long handmade shank. JP stabbed the other inmate in the chest, back, shoulders, and legs while they were in the prison yard. JP pled guilty to attempted murder, and his 10-year sentence was ordered to be served consecutively with his 15-year sentence for Tristan's murder. Nine years later, in 2015, handmade syringes were found in JP's mail. He pled guilty to possession of controlled substance and received a four-year sentence. On May 1st of this year, JP was denied parole. He'll be eligible again in 2023. Under a new California law, the parole board has to take into account the diminished culpability of juveniles when considering parole for inmates who committed crimes when they were minors. The murder of Tristan Jensen was covered by the true crime show Solved on Investigation Discovery. An episode of hit TV show CSI was based on this case. The CSI episode is titled Down the Drain. Our next case takes us to the other side of the United States. New Rochelle, New York is located at the southeastern point of New York on Long Island Sound. It's about a 30-minute train ride from Midtown Manhattan. The town is diverse, with a mix of professionals and immigrants living there. In some parts of town, you'll find public housing. In other parts, you'll find million-dollar homes. What's interesting is that there is only one public high school in New Rochelle, so kids from all socioeconomic backgrounds attend school together. New Rochelle High School is known to be one of the best high schools in the U.S. The school is a two-time Blue Ribbon School winner, which is the highest honor that can be achieved by an American school. 96% of New Rochelle High School graduates go on to attend college. Some notable graduates of New Rochelle High School are Henry Heimlich, the inventor of Heimlich Maneuver, Russell T. Lewis, the CEO of New York Times Company, and Don Hewitt, producer of the show 60 Minutes. Suffice it to say, the school has a solid reputation, and nobody would have expected the events that occurred in January of this year. We'll get to that soon. 16-year-old Valerie Schwab was a junior at New Rochelle High School. She lived with her parents, her sister, and her brother. Valerie had another brother, but he died when he was just 18 years old. Valerie was a very bright girl, an honors student taking AP classes. Valerie was one of those rare teenagers who found her voice at a young age and was not afraid to use it. 
Valerie's aunt said that her niece was bullied at school for being different and outspoken. Classmates described Valerie as unique and someone who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She was artistic. She enjoyed playing the guitar and writing songs. Valerie was a political activist and spoke out against President Donald Trump on YouTube, calling his presidency, quote, tyranny. She went on to organize an anti-Trump protest calling it, quote, Students Refuse Fascism 2017. Here's a YouTube clip of Valerie speaking out against President Donald Trump. I wanted to get um, high school students and people my age to start speaking out against um, the tyranny, the, the complete tyranny that has been going on. On January 10th, 2018, Valerie had an argument with another student named Carl Booker. The exact details of what led to the altercation are unknown. After the altercation with Carl, Valerie left school with her boyfriend, who goes by the initials LF in reports. The two of them left campus to get lunch, despite the fact that New Rochelle High School had a closed campus lunch policy. Many students would leave campus for lunch, even though the school had a policy against it. Valerie and LF walked to a nearby McDonald's. A group of seven students, five boys and two girls, followed the couple there. Carl Booker, the boy with whom Valerie argued with earlier in the day, confronted LF inside the McDonald's restaurant and challenged him to a fight. At the same time, Carl was trying to get one of the other boys in the group to fight Valerie. Instead of fighting Valerie, the boy threw water at her. Valerie followed the boy outside of the restaurant and sprayed him with pepper spray. Valerie and LF left McDonald's and headed toward a Subway restaurant. The group of teenagers continued following them, yelling and taunting the two as they walked toward the Subway restaurant. Carl called another friend, Dominique Slack, and asked her to join the group at Subway to attack Valerie. There is surveillance footage available on YouTube that shows Valerie and LF inside the Subway restaurant. The footage shows the angry teenagers entering Subway and confronting Valerie and LF. The couple stayed inside the Subway for about 30 minutes. Meanwhile, the group of kids outside grew to 11. The teenagers outside were yelling for Valerie to come out and fight. At 12.11 p.m., the surveillance footage shows Valerie and LF leaving the restaurant. They thought the group outside was gone and that it was safe to leave. They were wrong. As soon as the two stepped outside, someone struck LF twice in the back of the head. At this time, LF pulled a knife out in an attempt to get the group to back off. At this time, Dominique hit Valerie and pulled her hair so hard it knocked her to the ground. Valerie's keys and pepper spray fell from her hands. One of the angry teenagers picked up Valerie's keys and pepper spray and tossed them over a fence into a parking lot. It was later determined that Dominique's assault on Valerie caused numerous injuries, including a subarachnoid hemorrhage to the left side of her brain. After the assault on Valerie, Dominique, a girl named Zania Brown, and two other kids walked over to Dunkin' Donuts. Valerie got up from the ground and walked into Dunkin' Donuts after the girls. She was alone and asking for her keys. Valerie told the girls she wanted her keys and just wanted to go home. As Zania walked toward the door, ignoring Valerie's request, Valerie grabbed Zania's coat. Zania responded by stabbing Valerie with a steak knife, once in the left side of her chest and once in her back. Zania fled the scene and threw the knife into a snowbank. A cashier from the nearby Subway restaurant held Valerie's hand as she gasped for air. Valerie must have been in shock because she didn't even know she had been stabbed. The Subway cashier said, quote, She was screaming, saying that somebody stole her keys. She went on to say, quote, 
She was just standing by herself, bleeding. The cashier said all the kids who followed Valerie and LF fled the scene after Valerie was stabbed. Police and EMS were on the scene shortly after the assault, and they transported Valerie to Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. Tragically, Valerie succumbed to her wounds and died later that afternoon. It was not hard to figure out who killed Valerie, given the number of people who were present during the assault. Flyers were posted in the areas around the school and online. Zaniah turned herself into police the following day. She was charged with second-degree murder. Today, in the stabbing death of a 16-year-old girl near a high school in New Rochelle, another 16-year-old, Zaniah Brown, turned herself in this afternoon. I want to see reporter Darla Miles is live in New Rochelle tonight, where Brown was arraigned a short time ago. Darla. That's right, Liz. Brown was arraigned before 5 o'clock this evening and is now being held without bail. But at this point, police are still investigating what these two 16-year-old girls could have been arguing about that was so serious that now one of them is dead and one of them is in jail. It appears to be a case of escalating emotions going too far, too fast. Now 16-year-old Zaniah Brown is charged with the second-degree murder of a classmate, her family, in court for her Thursday afternoon arraignment, where the teen is now being charged as an adult. Get out my face. Get out my face. Police say Brown argued with Valerie Schwab outside of Dunkin' Donuts, just down the street from their school, New Rochelle High, Wednesday afternoon. During the dispute, they say Schwab pepper sprayed Brown, who then stabbed Schwab with a steak knife two times in her upper left torso. When officers from this department responded to the report of an altercation and a female bleeding and losing consciousness at the Dunkin' Donuts. A memorial for Valerie began forming outside the Dunkin' Donuts where she was attacked. People left stuffed animals, handwritten notes, and drawings. Just a day later, a threat of violence against the New Rochelle High School students was made on social media. I've read that LF made the online threat as he was angry over what happened to his girlfriend, but this information has not been verified. School officials addressed the threat and determined it was not credible. Even so, security was amped up at the high school. Just weeks after Valerie's death, 15-year-old New Rochelle High School student Brian Stamps was followed by a group of kids to Jamelli's Pizzeria. While trying to order lunch, Brian was jumped by a group of older teenagers, six or seven of them. The older teens threw chairs and bottles at Brian. Police said Brian grabbed wine bottles to defend himself and chased the older teens out of the restaurant. The following day, Brian came to school armed with a knife. He was angry and wanting revenge for what happened to him at the pizzeria the day before. Brian stabbed a classmate during first period and then fled the school. The boy Brian stabbed apparently had nothing to do with the assault, but he may have been friends with the attackers. The boy's wounds were serious. He suffered a punctured lung and a ruptured spleen as a result of the attack. The people in town had never seen anything like this. The sudden burst of violence shocked the residents of New Rochelle, and many parents were demanding changes in order to keep their children safe. The community was still mourning Valerie's death, and now dealing with another violent attack involving New Rochelle high school students. Brian Stamps was on the run for four months after he stabbed a classmate. The FBI finally caught up with him in May of this year in Gadsden, Alabama. Brian refused to cooperate with authorities, so nobody was ever charged in connection with the assault on him at Jamelli's Pizzeria earlier in the year. A week after Valerie's death, her attacker, Zaniah Brown, appeared in court in New Rochelle. 
Talk of the Sound reported that Zaniah had previously been declared homeless. Zaniah seemed to enjoy the attention she received in court that day. Over 100 family members and friends showed up in support of Zaniah, who at times seemed to ignore the judge while straining to look around the court to see who was there. She smiled at times and tried to communicate with people in the courtroom. It was as if she didn't grasp the seriousness of the matter, or perhaps she didn't care. Zaniah's aunt held a prayer circle for her niece prior to the hearing that day and referred to the stabbing as, quote, an accident, even though Valerie was stabbed two times in her heart and her lungs. Zaniah's aunt was also upset that her niece was charged as an adult and called her a victim of the justice system. In court proceedings, a deal was made to move the case to White Plains, New York, about 10 miles away from where the stabbing occurred. A key piece of evidence on the prosecution side will be those surveillance videos from the Subway restaurant, where Valerie and her boyfriend took shelter from the angry mob outside. After the outburst of violence, New Rochelle High School closed off the campus during the day and cracked down on their closed campus policy during lunch. Police officers stand guard outside the school, and there is an overall increased police presence in the area. Once a highly sought-after school, New Rochelle High School suffered consequences as a result of all the violence. A month after Valerie's death and the stabbing incident involving Brian Stamps, George W. Hewlett High School on Long Island announced its students would not be participating in a model congress at New Rochelle High School. They cited safety concerns as their reasoning for not participating. Four additional school districts also declined to participate, which forced New Rochelle High School to cancel the event altogether. Three months after Valerie's death, charges were brought against three people. Zaniah Brown, 17 years old at the time, was charged with murder in the second degree, manslaughter in the first degree, criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree, gang assault in the second degree, stalking in the first degree, and stalking in the third degree. Zaniah's charges carry maximum sentences ranging from one year to life in prison without parole. Carl Booker and Dominique Slack were charged with gang assault in the second degree, stalking in the first degree, stalking in the third degree, and assault in the third degree. Their charges carry maximum sentences ranging between one year and 15 years. A fourth person, 15 years old at the time, was also charged with evidence tampering and hindering prosecution. This person's name was not available given that he or she was charged as a juvenile. Attorneys for Dominique Slack and Carl Booker asked the judge if their clients' cases could be tried separately from Zaniah Brown's. That will be decided later as the judge thought it was, quote, premature to separate the cases at this time. Meanwhile, at New Rochelle High School, additional steps have been taken to keep students safe and to put a stop to the bullying. Parents have been putting significant pressure on the school since the violence erupted. In response, the school district has adopted technology as a way to keep kids safe. Students have been encouraged to download an app on their phones which will allow them to anonymously alert the school of bullying, drug use, violence, or anything else that poses a danger to students. The thought behind this is that a higher percentage of students will report these issues if they have a way to do it anonymously. According to StopBullying.gov, nearly 25% of students between 6th and 12th grade have been bullied. More than 70% of students have witnessed students being bullied. Valerie's aunt, Monica Schwab, hopes all the newly implemented safety procedures aren't too little, too late. She said, quote, Valerie had written statements saying she needed help. 
She hated to come to school. She didn't want to be here. Let's make sure no one else has to experience that. Manuel Lopez, the father of a friend of Valerie's, said his daughter has been bullied since sixth grade. He went on to say, quote, Look what happened to Valerie. Valerie tried to defend herself with pepper spray, and they nailed her. You know I cried for that child. It broke my heart. She was just somebody's baby. That concludes this episode. As always, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on these cases. Head over to the Murderish Facebook group and let's talk about it. Don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend about Murderish and leave a positive rating and review in iTunes. If you'd like to take your support for the podcast a step further, head over to patreon.com slash murderish to see some cool perks that are available in exchange for your monthly support. If you become a patron, you'll have immediate access to bonus content, which includes some fun conversations with other true crime podcast hosts. Murderish merch is available at two online stores. If you'd like to sport a Murderish t-shirt or sip coffee from a Murderish mug, head over to murderishpodcast.threadless.com or tpublic.com slash user slash murderish podcast. Links to both merch stores can be found in episode show notes and in the about section of the Murderish Facebook group. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, J-A-M-I, at gmail.com. This show is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Intro and outro music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Listener disclaimer at the beginning of the show provided by Tyler Allen, host of the Minds of Madness podcast. Research for this episode by friend of the show, Steve Field. I hope you'll stick around for a couple more minutes to hear promos from my friends who host the Dumb and Busted and the Ghosts of the Stratosphere podcast. I've found so many podcasts after hearing their promos on other shows. I hope you'll find something new to listen to. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. What podcast brings you true stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes every week? Dumb and busted, obviously. But Hannah, where is your one-stop shop if you want to hear about a killer nurse, a pervy arsonist, or a group of hella old dudes breaking into a vault? Dumb and busted. Allison, come on, seriously? We host the show together. Okay, last question. Where can I go if I need to hear the number one song of 1999, I Want It That Way? What? The Backstreet Boys album Millennium? How did we even get on this tangent? Oh, okay. Sorry for being the only one who's ever fallen victim to their tight harmonies and timeless songs. Anyway, please listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Crime you later! From the galactic depths of the comic book universe comes the ghosts of the stratosphere, ready to galvanize and energize your mind with the latest of comic book news and reviews. And why why are you stopping me? Yes, that's much better. 
Hi, this is Andy Larson for Ghosts of the Stratosphere. Join me every week along with my co-hosts Rob Stewart and Chad Smith as well as a cavalcade of fantastic comic book guests as we dish out heaping helpings of the greatest and latest of comic book news and reviews. New shows posted every Tuesday with bonus shows every first Friday of the month. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher under Ghosts of the Stratosphere as well as on our website www.gotstratosphere.com Hope to see you soon, folks. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.